I'm Sabrina, and today I'm here with Haney Rashwan, who is the founder of Amun and 21 Shares. I'm so glad that he's joining us. We are going to speak about his journey in starting several companies by the age of 31 and his insights into the future of crypto and regulation, how to make a personal investment, and some other fascinating topics. So listen in. Hi, Haney. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thank you so, so much for being here. <laughs> we had some technical difficulties, but we are here. We're ready. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you. I think so much of what you're doing is at the epicenter of what people are interested in hearing about. Um, so let's get into it. I want to start from the beginning of your story. And you were born in Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. Where in Egypt were you born? So I was born in Cairo, but I grew up in Alexandria. Okay. And how was growing up in Alexandria? Um, wonderful, wonderful. I, um, I, a lot of what I'm doing today has a lot to do with uh, my upbringing in Egypt. Um, Please tell me about that. Yeah. So I, I think there's a direct link to um, obviously crypto and fintech opportunities with growing up in, in a developing economy where mm. there's especially one that is the size of Egypt where we're the 21st largest economy in the world by PPP, but may not necessarily have a lot of the financial infrastructure in place. So uh, growing up, I, I would say... Uh, I understand more of the need for crypto in today's world. Um, and I, I specifically grew up in a family that was uh, very intellectually demanding. And it, it led to a lot of passionate debates and, and a lot of intellectual curiosity from a very early age. Oh, that sounds great. And what was your first experience in Egypt with computer science, coding computers? Like, what, what got you into this? So I had, um, I had a grandfather who... Uh, introduced me to all of this space. Um, he he started very early, I think when he was 17 or 18, in the Egyptian army, worked his way up to ranks at some point, uh, was one of the leaders of military intelligence and a general and a wow. cryptographer. Uh, at some point later on, um, he became a, um, a computer science professor, actually, after getting a PhD in computer science. Oh, interesting. So he, he bought me, uh, he bought me my first computer. He... Uh, taught me how to use it. Um, I think my, my first thing was a normal MS-DOS uh, back in the day where, where you had to do command prompts to get anywhere. <laughs> um, and then at some point, it, um, it it made sense to learn a little bit more about programming. And where I really, really uh, focused and, and the part of it that I liked was uh, programming internet-based languages. Because I think there's a very, very nice uh, feedback loop where what you're able to uh, to write is instantly available on the internet for anyone to see. Yes, that's true. And what age did you start programming? Um, so he taught me the basic concepts when I was 11 or 12. Um, I was an 11 or 12-year-old programmer. It was not uh, obviously the most sophisticated things in the world, but that that's when I started really getting more into it. Um, and it started off very simply with things like HTML and just building very basic static pages. Think about, you know, text and colors and images and the, and the like. Um, and then uh, things escalated a little bit um, with, with more dynamic websites and user registrations and databases and, and all that other fun stuff. That's, that's awesome. I imagine that at 11, 12 years old when you started, most people around you were not doing that or not even, you know, fully into the, the internet or having laptops yet? Am I right about that? Yeah, so I, I think I had, um, I was living in two different worlds. Mm. Um, I had my, let's call them normal, same-aged friends um, from school and, and, and from my neighborhood and, and, and that kind of thing. But at the same time, I, I was quite um, active online. And, I, and I, set up, I started setting up my first internet websites and that, that then 
later would transform into uh, businesses around this age. And so I developed um, a lot of friendships online with, with wow. like-minded folks. And um, a lot of them I, I still have in my life in some way. Um, some There were a few people that who were maybe 10 or 15 years older than me at that point um, who would work with me on some of my websites, would help me uh, debug some of my code, would teach me. Um, and friendships were developed there. And at some point, uh, we ended up even hiring one of them who, who worked on one of our companies. That's really cool. That's cool. It's it's like, you know, online friendships can really become amazing value adds to your life. And I'm sure you met some of them in person at certain points. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, let me actually think about that. Or maybe you didn't need to. The nature was online. I don't think I have ever met any of them. Wow. But you feel close I to probably close. Like, one or two. I know who they are. I've... Uh, I know what they look like, um, what they sound like. Actually, uh, for the longest time, there were, there were a few people that I did not know what they sounded like because we, you only ever talked on text. Um, but but there's there's some real magic with with online communities and 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 getting to be in a place where borders don't matter. Wow. So you have this online community. You're learning how to code. I'm sure every year you're getting better at it. And what was your first? online business or website that you started? Yeah. So I, um, as, as a child, I was playing all of these um, computer games, um, World of Warcraft and RuneScape and Neopets and, and all of, of that stuff. Of course. Neopets <laughs> was amazing. Um, and I honestly did not enjoy the games as much as I did enjoy programming. Um, and my friends were playing the games. Um, I was sort of connected to these games in some way. And I ended mm -hmm. up just creating, um, at the beginning, just as a hobby or, or, or a toy, um, items databases, characters databases, quest guides for all these various games. And a few years into it, um, it really transformed into something much larger than, than I could have ever predicted. Um, my top website had, by the time I was a freshman or sophomore in high school, my top website had 750,000 unique visitors. Wow. Um, I was able to monetize it via, via advertisements. I learned a lot about that. I had a small staff, including some people that, that I'm still in touch with, um, that, that were working with me on that. Wow, that is fascinating. And that is a, a huge population of people, especially when you're going into like, I'm sure that most of those users were younger and you're already in a, a smaller population. That's fascinating. So first of all, you would be surprised how many 35-year-olds uh, play Oh, really? <laughs> so it's not always the case, but yeah, predominantly younger. Wow, that's cool. So you are living here and you're acclimating relatively easily. And then you go to, you go to college in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and you drop out. Can you, can you tell me? Or sure. Just tell me that journey of like college and then where it led you and what you were working on. Sure. So I, um, I went to school. Um, at this point, again, all my family are, are doctors, and, and the family business is actually a healthcare business. Do you still feel that that's where you'll end up at this point? At this point, I think we're, we're way past that. Mm. Um, but when I was a child, thinking through that, I, I still thought I would at some point go to medical school. Um, and, you know, the writing was on the wall. The signs were there. Obviously, I, I, I really, really loved mathematics. It was actually my first major in college. Um, I enjoyed physics way more than I enjoyed chemistry and biology, which which I deeply despised. Actually. <laughs> um, and so it was quite obvious that maybe the life sciences wouldn't be uh, for me. Uh, doctors should like the life sciences. But um, at, at some point, I 
I go to school, I start uh, studying mathematics, I switch to computer science and economics, and uh, I end up being introduced by the dean of my college to this other um, young man who was uh, working on an idea and uh, needed a co-founder. And what was that idea? So the idea was, was actually very uh, nice, simple, and powerful. It was uh, a one-page checkout. So oftentimes you're trying to sell just one item, and the item could be like your own service. Hmm. Um, you're selling me, uh, I don't know, website development work for 10 hours at $250 per hour, and, and I owe you $2,500. Um, and so it was a simple way of creating these links where you can go and buy a single item or you're selling the same PDF guide over and over and over again. Um, broadly speaking, in the e-commerce space, um, this, uh, this individual was a brilliant designer, a pretty good programmer as well. And uh, I thought that, you know, there's something that I could bring to the table. That was my first uh, co-founding gig at all. And I was the co-founder and CTO of that company. Uh, so you were more uh, on the tech side of that venture? To be honest... At this point, we're you know we're twenty, and these are just titles. Yeah. Um, and we were we were both contributing, we were both programming, we were both um, designing, we were both doing whatever it took. Um, at some point, we got into an accelerator in San Francisco. Mm. Um, it was so called Angel. You moved to SF. Yeah, it was called AngelPad, and the the biggest company that went through them is Postmates. Um, and I took a, a quarter off. That's what I thought this would. Uh, entail. I thought I will. I will go. I will learn a thing or two about this, and then three months later, I'm going to go back to school. Um, so you told your parents like it's one quarter off. It'll be a great experience in San Francisco with startups. And I told my parents. Um, they, especially my mom, uh, secretly freaked out, but never showed that to me. It was sort of like you know, a duck underneath water looks a lot. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's working much harder than than it seems, and and on the top, it's a little bit more effortless. To her credit, she supported me, um, thought that, you know, if, if I want to try this, that I can try this. And the worst case scenario in her mind was, he'll try this for a year, it won't work, and he'll get invaluable experience. Um, and her philosophy on this was that I would forever regret um, not trying this out mm -hmm. versus trying it out and it not working. If it doesn't work, then I'll graduate a year later. Totally. Um, the the risk yeah. isn't isn't that bad. It's not that the stakes aren't that high. And you, how would you explain your framework around making these decisions? You you just touched on it, but yeah. So um, it, it's funny because her her worst case scenario was I would I would graduate a year later and ended up graduating like six or seven years later. <laughs> but um, Jeff Bezos has this framework. Uh, I think he calls it the regret minimization framework, and it's actually why how he came to the decision to create Amazon and leave his, at the time, very high-paying finance job in wow. New York, where he was objectively quite happy and, and successful. And his logic, which is um, actually the same the same model that, that my mom used, um, was you will forever, uh, when people are asked later on in life about their deepest regrets, they often regret paths not taken, roads not traveled on versus t doing something and it not working out. And that applies across the board. It applies with certainly professional ventures, but it could equally apply personally with relationships, et cetera. And I, and I think that more open-mindedness um, was, was a key asset that my, that my mother gave me. And, and it enabled me to take these bets that ended up ultimately, I think, being the right decision. Definitely. So 
So there was a journey to get to where you are today. And if you could just quickly explain that journey, there was two companies, I believe, in that period. And yeah, could you tell me a bit sure. about Ribbon and Payout? Yeah. So um, ironically, the, the company that took me to San Francisco didn't end up working out. We had a mm -hmm. co-founder breakup that happens. Um, I learned a lot in that company. Um, it, was a, it, it was in total a six-month venture. Uh, from when I met my, my late co-founder to uh, when we decided to part ways. Um, I learned a lot in, in that company and the, and the next one, uh, Ribbon, by honestly doing a lot of, uh, of things I should not be doing. Mm. And so I, I developed a lot of scar tissue from those kinds of things that at this point I've, I've tried super hard to correct and overcorrect with, with my current companies. Um, but essentially, I moved to San Francisco for, for this one company. It didn't work out. Pivoted into Ribbon, which was a beautiful product. We put buy buttons inside of Facebook and Twitter. That was super historic. Um, Twitter worked with us on it directly for, for eight or nine months. Uh, we were in contact with them on a regular basis. And then when we launched, they took it down within 90 minutes. So that was fun. Wow. Uh, that must have been a huge disappointment. It was, it was ridiculous. Um, but... Twitter was, at the time, um, a disorganized mess. Mm. They were terrible to their developers, something they even acknowledge today. And that's a key part of probably why uh, Twitter is not as big as Facebook today. Um, I remember during this era, uh, there would be debates. This would be an intelligent debate of which one will be bigger, Twitter or Facebook. Um, and, and now it's it's obvious. It's super obvious at this point. And, and part of the the difference is that uh, Facebook treated the, their developers uh, much, much better. It developed a better uh, developer ecosystem. If you remember, we, we had like stickers on our profile pages. We could uh, edit it at some point. Zingo was a very big deal then. Uh, and it developed Facebook into more of a platform and, and Twitter really suffered for it. But anyways, that was, my, that was my first company. We pivoted that into an API payments play, still in fintech, still in, 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 in financial technologies. And that ended up being a moderate success where... Um, we successfully built um, this uh, payments platform that most of the online lenders in the U.S. used. Um, and we, we sold it to an acquirer that was, uh, in the end, based in New York. Well, congrats on that. And that that period of your life, I imagine it was hectic. There were probably ups and downs. And, and how did you think, like, okay, I want to – I definitely still want to be an entrepreneur. And I, I'm going to – okay, now I'm going to pivot this company to be that. And how did you keep that – motivation during that time so it's this is actually so funny um the first I, I i sort of knew deep down that i wanted to be a startup founder and when this guy came and he had his own idea and he'd been working on it for quite some time i thought this is interesting let me do this because i want to start a company and when that didn't work out i just i'm a very tenacious person um and so i kept going and i kept going until the end where um we pivoted twice and then were able to sell the company. And it, it, was, a, it was a fine sale. It was a small sale. Um, but at no point did I really um, want to build those specific products. Mm. I didn't build them for me. I built them for the opportunity. Um, and That's really interesting. It wasn't until this company that I ended up building a product for me, for my family, ultimately for my mother, actually. And doing it in a space that I was super passionate about and I liked. I liked payments intellectually. Yeah. But I really was never into enterprise loan disbursements via Totally. API. And that makes sense. It's like, you know, fintech is a great space. And yeah, this product would be 
useful and it, it should do really well. So it, it makes sense, but it wasn't necessarily that like innate passion or something that it's like, oh my God, I want to build that. But but I mean, it taught you so much. So that totally worked out. And now let's get into the companies that you're working on today, um, which is Amun and 21 shares in the crypto space. So my first question about this is, when were you first introduced to cryptocurrency in any form? So I was introduced to it super early on. Um, and at the beginning, it wasn't that serious. It was a complete toy. Um, what year are we talking? 2011, late 2011, 2012, wow. I think. Um, the, the first time I was introduced to it was my lead investor was this guy called Tim Draper, mm -hmm. who is absolutely crazy over crypto and was talking about it nonstop, had invested in a, in a few crypto companies as well. And uh, through that, I met more people in the community. At some point, someone that was working on crypto um, gave me uh, three Bitcoins. Uh, he gave me $50 worth of Bitcoins, actually, and it, it was three Bitcoins. Wow. Played around with it, didn't know what to do with it, didn't think it was that interesting. Um, tossed it aside, have no idea where it is. I will forever know what the current price of Bitcoin times three is, uh, and, and that's just a recurring theme. Um, fast forward a couple years later, Bitcoin goes from the $15 to $200, and then there's a run-up from 200 to 1200 That was interesting, played a little bit with it, made a little bit of money. Um, nothing significant, dismissed it again. And I think that was, at this point, probably 2013, 2014. And it wasn't until the end of 2016, when, when uh, we were actually going through the M&A process and selling the company, and I had uh, more time on my hands, that I, I, I looked at it a little bit more seriously. And, it, and I wasn't even meaning to. Uh, what happened is, I'm Egyptian. Egypt had um, a very, very difficult last 10 years, we've had a few revolutions. And at some point, our fiscal condition was quite poor. Yeah. And we needed to devalue the currency by 50% overnight. Um, in a year where inflation at the top reached 35%. And a lot of people in Egypt were trying to just safeguard their net worth because it's not a bad taxable year. It's actually um, a complete collapse of your net worth. If you think about it, a majority of your net worth is going to evaporate because yeah. you're in this currency that's that's going to be devalued. And I started reading um, news reports about engineers, doctors, lawyers, middle class people um, <clears throat> facing arrest, sometimes getting arrested for trying to purchase Bitcoin on the street with cash and for huge markups, actually, for, mm -hmm. you know, they were paying. You could have very easily paid a 50 percent fee and still lost less money. Wow. Um, and so that, that that says a lot. And. When I, when I recognized that, I thought, this is interesting. If it applies to Egypt, then this could apply to Turkey and Spain and Argentina and Brazil and Russia and China. And it was a much bigger market than I initially thought. Um, and at the beginning, I, I think I dismissed it. I thought this could be interesting for failed states or it could be an index of the black market, which is quite an interesting concept, but not something that I'm super passionate about. Yeah, that's very interesting. So once it sort of hit further closer to home for you, you realized there's really something here. And what were your, your first steps in creating an idea on what you were going to build? So nothing, nothing whatsoever. I wasn't thinking of, you know, building a company in the space. All I wanted to do at the beginning, um, I was actually, I was actually uh, thinking, so I was, at this point, I had sold the company, was working at the acquirer, and I was thinking of building either an insurance company or a small business bank. Still in fintech, super excited about it, studying it as, as my non-compete you know, uh, period ends and as I finish my, my college um, and, and get a degree. 
um, what happened is I thought my family should make an investment in Bitcoin. And later I thought my family should also make an investment in Ethereum um, when it came out and, and, and started becoming more of a thing. And my family has made tech investments, angel investments. We, we, we've invested in VC funds as LPs. And so this was obvious and that's sort of how I, how I thought about it and how I wrote the investment memo internally for my family. Is we will hold on to this in the same way that we invest in VC funds, which is to say seven to 10 years. Um, we're making a, a strategic bet, yeah. a, a thesis, and let's just make the allocation and purchase it. And how did they react to it? To it? My father uh, cursed at me um, and, and thought that this was the most idiotic thing. Um, mm -hmm. My mother um, really, really, uh, I think, got it uh, very quickly. My mom is the fastest person outside of tech that, that understood Bitcoin in my life. Um, and under under traditional Sharia law, um, the, the wife has equal access to both her money and her husband's money, whereas the husband only has access to his money. And oh, so interesting. My mother's money is actually independent of my father's. Um, she has access to his, but she has her own pot that she can do stuff with. And so what ended up happening is that my mother is the one that um, accepted and made the initial um, allocation, which the the issue then um, became, well, how do we make this allocation? And yeah. it took us a good seven months or so to make it. And I explored a lot of really, really bad options that were quite popular at the time. Just to go through some of those, like what was, why not Coinbase at that time, for example? That's a household name of a way to buy, sell crypto. Yeah. So the, the choices were either use an exchange and... Um, do the custody yourself, be worried about that, potentially getting hacked. Uh, it was quite expensive. It wasn't super easy. We needed a way for basically the people that do investments for the family to monitor it and, 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 and to just have it fit in a bucket mm. alongside the other investments and equities and, and bonds and commodities and whatever. So there was that aspect of it. On the financial side, there were companies like um, Grayscale and CoinShares that still exist to this day. Um, I took a look at both of them as customers, as, as, sorry, as a customer. Um, Grayscale was in the business of selling uh, $10 worth of Bitcoin for $14. I didn't think that was the right thing to do. They're yeah, still doing huge it. fees. And especially when you're when you're dealing with large, uh, larger amounts of money, that that's that's a big fee to accept. Exactly. And uh, the advice we were given is, you know, this asset only goes up. Don't worry about it. Um, and then CoinShares had recently gone bankrupt. Um, there was a lot of counterparty risk. Uh, if you study financial structuring, the way these things were built is just a lesson in all the things that you should not be doing. Mm -hmm. um, but they were the only options. Um, and they were the only options because at that point, regulators hadn't allowed any structure that, that was sound. And so all of these were either shortcuts or uh, backdoor listings or, or, or those kinds of things. And so I, I took a look at that. I took a look at a lot of mm -hmm. private banks in Switzerland and elsewhere. I, look, I took a look at structured products and none of this made that much sense. Um, and again, wasn't looking to start a company. was just trying to get my family to, to make an investment here. So then when did you decide to start the company? At some point, I, I ran into a very good friend of mine who was experiencing much the same issues, um, getting her mother to invest in, in Bitcoin. She's Italian and, you know, it's uh, economically, it's a little bit hard to figure out um, where North Africa ends and Southern Europe begins. We sort of have the same problems, but, um, you know, uh, under slightly different um, styles. Um, and she was experiencing the same problem. We're both quite intellectually curious. And at some point, we, we started thinking about, well, why doesn't a Bitcoin ETF exist? Um, we very quickly determined that it would be very 
very, very challenging to do it in the United States. The Winklevoss twins at this point had tried and failed multiple times. It was clear that the regulations would not um, be quick enough to do this here. And rather than sit and wait, what we, what we really um, thought of is this will be an internationally acclaimed and popular asset. Let's build the base somewhere stable, professional, um, of the highest quality, and then use that base elsewhere, uh, use it as a base from which to expand into the United States, into um, the Middle East, Australia, Singapore, wherever. That makes that makes so much sense. And where did you decide to start it? And and what what countries were allowing it and welcoming it? So at this point, zero companies had really allowed we allowed it. We we built the world's first physically backed crypto exchange traded product. Um, no one had done it before, and it was quite difficult. Um, we took a look at 27 different jurisdictions around the world on every continent except Antarctica. Um, Switzerland was by far our number one choice. We really liked um, we liked how professional they were. It is a real financial center. It's not a center for startups, uh, but maybe we'll change that. Um, they had the right talent. They had the right history. They had the right pedigree. It wasn't, you know, an unprofessional, not super well-known island where, where anything <laughs> flies. It had a lot of good access into um, into the financial system. And the the last thing that made Switzerland really make sense is that you could argue that Bitcoin going well is a very, very good thing for Switzerland as a country, whereas it is not as straightforward a case for a number of other countries. Could you explain that quickly? Sure. So I think um, a lot of the things that the Swiss are known for, that they built, um, private bank accounts, having more control on your assets, um, the concept of privacy when it comes to financial transactions are things that are very inherent in cryptocurrency. I think there's a reason why the Swiss were the first to do this. I think they're, that the Swiss took a look at this and said, huh, this looks very, very familiar. And it's aligned with their values and their laws now. Exactly. And we didn't want to, we didn't want to go anywhere where we weren't welcome. Mm -hmm. And we didn't want to push any regulator in a direction where they don't want to go. And we, we still feel that way today. Um, there are plenty of places um, that this makes sense for that, that, um, that, that we can invest time, energy and resources in. And we want to go to places where the regulators are happy with us and, and want us there. We're not going to do backdoor listings or shortcuts. Definitely. It makes your life so much easier. And there are so many countries that it takes time to expand and you can work on those until it becomes just a worldwide norm. Exactly. Um, so where are you today? I mean, as in what countries are you based in today? Sure. So as it exists today, uh, we are predominantly in Europe. Uh, we have over $2 billion in AUM. 15 products, a majority of all crypto exchange traded products in the world are issued by our company. Um, that's only going to get even crazier because we have plans of doubling our uh, product suite from 15 to 30 just by the end of this year. Wow. Um, we're in Switzerland, Austria, Germany, France, Holland, soon Italy, Sweden, Dubai. Um, and, and, and we're working on probably uh, around a dozen more. That's awesome. Congrats. That's a huge deal. And just for our listeners that aren't as versed in the crypto world yet. Could you quickly explain what an ETF is um, and so what sure. you're offering your clients basically? No, absolutely. So um, all an ETF is, is it's, it's, a, it's a vessel or it's a vehicle that makes it easier to invest or hold certain assets. Um, a lot of the very popular ETFs are either things like S&P 500 um, ETFs where you can buy just one share that represents 
the top 500 listed companies in America. You're buying the American economy by just one product. And it's much easier to buy and manage that than to buy the 500, which change in size and some get bigger, some get smaller. That's one type of ETF. Um, the other kind of ETF that's super popular is uh, for assets that are difficult to manage. So a lot of people buy gold through ETFs rather than purchasing it physically and having to store it, custody it, move it around, uh, et cetera, you can just buy something that exists in your brokerage that represents that gold in the background, uh, but not in a direct way. That's such a good explanation. It makes so much sense. Like most people don't have like gold sitting in their house, but you might, you know, invest in it as an asset. So you are running this company and it's very exciting and congratulations for what you've built really. And I just want to ask you some sort of topical questions about the current moment and sure. things that people I'm sure would really want to hear from from your perspective. My first thing I have to ask is just that 21 shares, along with Kathy Wood and ARK Investments, recently um, filed a Bitcoin ETF to the SEC for approval. And I'm just curious about how that process is going what do you think when do you think the US will will legalize and accept crypto ETFs I hope at some point in the future but I have no comments on that we don't really speak um, to uh, we don't we don't talk about our, our, our conversations with regulators um, Kathy is a longtime advisor and investor she ended up joining our board as our independent board member last year we announced it this year um, and 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 people are going absolutely crazy for her yeah, right now. Yeah, people so love her. It's, it's a little <laughs> bit of a big deal. But Kathy has been there from not not the beginning, but pretty early on in, in, in the company. And she's been an invaluable resource. Um, we really, really believe in a great tide lifts all boats. Um, we think that this is a rapidly expanding market and, and a large number of people will do supremely well. Um, and we seek to do things with partners. And so when we were thinking about the United States, um, we couldn't think of a better partner than ARC. We align philosophically a lot. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but ARC is an acronym. Uh, it stands for uh, Active Research Knowledge. And it's from the background of Kathy uh, as a predominantly equity researcher. And the, the same kind of intellectual firepower and curiosity and passion um, that they've developed there, we've, we've, we've copied. Uh, we've grown through our, our research. How do you think the general like, government stance on crypto is today? Coinbase, um, the SEC recently threatened to sue Coinbase over their lending product they're going to launch. Allegedly. We, we Allegedly. Something in the news. <laughs> From Coinbase, yeah. But um, just how are you interpreting that? And like, how has your experience in general, not on this specific filing, but been working with the financial and institutional systems here? I think most of our uh, reputations with regulators have been very positive. Uh, I think regulators sort of get a bad rep sometimes. Um, they're ultimately just seeking to protect the end consumers. In my experience, they're they're just fixated on that. Um, they're smart and intelligent people who who are trying to do um, the right thing. They're just incentivized in a very different way than than we are in the business world, and that's fine. Um, we don't really push against regulators when when they don't want to do something. That's fine. There are plenty of regulators that that do want to talk to us. Um, in the U.S., I would say crypto today is a very popular um, asset that is purchased by a lot of Americans. Uh, tens of millions of Americans have purchased crypto on, on exchanges and on some of these more inferior products that are out um, from our competitors. Um, and I think it's bipartisan. Um, That's great. It's bipartisan. It, 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 there, there are obviously critics and supporters. 
um, on, on both sides. But overall, I would say um, Ted Cruz is a huge uh, Bitcoin uh, bull. Um, he's very supportive of it. The state of Texas uh, is now the Bitcoin mining capital of the world, wow. especially West Texas. He's, he's going to be super supportive of it. Uh, there are a number of people on the on the on the left. If you look at Joe Biden um, and the SEC commissioner that he appointed, Gary Gensler, another crypto bull, MIT professor, taught blockchain at MIT, really knows uh, what he's talking about and is excited about it as a technology. Um, and and I think there's there's something to be said there about Americans really like this asset. It's not going anywhere. Uh, regulators aren't by definition against it. Politicians on both mm. sides are for it. And it's just a matter of time, I hope, uh, before we build uh, even more um, affordable, safe, uh, professional access to it. And people people that don't believe in it, and maybe these are some of the regulators, you know, fear in encouraging people to invest in it or making it very easy, is that it's this very volatile asset and it's all speculation and Bitcoin specifically. And obviously that doesn't apply to all the coins. But um, when you hear that argument, how do you usually respond? There's a couple ways to look at this. One is that as crypto started, it was sort of akin to a seed stage startup um, where if it, it was trading 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if, if you meet or invest in any seed stage startup, think about putting the first angel check uh, when the company's worth 500K or a million dollars. Yeah. Um, and then writing it at this point to a trillion dollars. If you had 24 7, 365 uh, availability of trading, it would seem quite volatile. Things happen. Um, and, and I think Bitcoin is a very unique, and crypto overall, very unique circumstance where everyone gets to invest in a seed stage startup. That now yeah. maybe, you know, depending on the coin, Series A, Series D, Series C, whatever. And so there's that way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is, historically speaking, mm -hmm. um, we've seen this before. Gold is one of the least volatile assets in people's opinions. Um, when gold in the 70s, in 1971, Richard Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard, uh, gold had a 15-year crazy period where it would go up 120% one year, down 80% another year. And what it was at the time um, is an emerging store of fat wow. or value. Um, and that's the same thing that, that Bitcoin was and arguably is today uh, and will be for some time is... Um, an emerging store of, of value, not necessarily a store of value. That's fascinating. I think most people forget that. I, you know what I mean? I, I think like people can, can often like block out, you know, the, the century before of economic history. But I mean, that makes a lot of sense to compare it to gold in that sense, because I've, I've heard it compared to gold in a lot of ways. People that really believe in Bitcoin, you know, say that, you know, what is the value of gold except for what society has given it? It has value now, so it's valuable. So people can say, the same thing for Bitcoin. The value is that we've given it value. It doesn't have to have any other purpose, you know. And and by the, currency is a collective fiction. Yeah. Um, if you if you read uh, Harari's Sapiens, the the entire point of uh, a huge inflection point of humanity and in, in our evolution as a species is believing in common myths and common mm. fictions uh, together. Money is a form of that in in all of its various styles, uh, and, and crypto is by no means different. True. Very true. And I want to ask you a question. So people that want to invest in crypto and potentially through an ETF or ETP in other countries where it's where it's currently allowed, um, how would you recommend creating a portfolio and how much of that portfolio should be allocated toward crypto assets? And within that, 
what do you think are the types of coins or prospects that should be, be given allocation? So I think it depends on, on your risk profile, and we generally don't really comment on what the allocations are. Mm. We have research on this, though. We have research on what, you know, uh, 1%, 5%, 10% would do to your portfolio historically. Um, the way my family thought about it was we're going to make a meaningful investment um, that that's pretty small. We started off with about 1% of our total um, investable portfolio in this, and it has since ballooned to uh, closer to 10% today. Wow. Um, and so that was that was that was quite good. We started with just Bitcoin. We expanded into Ethereum. We see that user journey a lot in crypto. Start with the basics. Don't I? I wouldn't have the first thing be something you don't understand or you don't know about or something that you heard online. Yeah. Bitcoin and Ethereum are very much the pillars of this, and in a way, you can you can sort of. It's like algebra or or basic mathematics. You you can um, bring back anything, whether it is. Uh, analysis or uh, linear algebra or calculus back to the basics. Take a look at Bitcoin, take a look at Ethereum, really, really learn about them and have that be the gateway uh, from which you can explore the rest of the crypto yeah. world. And do you have, these are two quick questions, but do you have any thoughts about, you know, what the price of Bitcoin might look like in 10 years? Because some people think it's 100K, some people think it would be over a million dollars. I personally think it's inevitable that Bitcoin replaces gold. You can mm. see what especially our generation is doing with it. And, and now I think it's, it's, it's a very difficult opinion to say that Bitcoin does not work or has not worked. Um, if it does that, it'll probably be somewhere between 300 and 600K if you think about the total market cap of gold. So from that lens, we're still very early. And we're I think people early. can feel like you're already late if you start investing now. We're, first of all, we're super, super early. Like I think this is 1987 mm. uh, and the internet has been created. And the, and the biggest bull um, in 1987, the biggest believer in the internet in 1987 could, couldn't have predicted where we are today, couldn't have possibly fathomed it. It's true. And um, the, the story could be a lot bigger. You, you hear estimates of, well, what happens if Bitcoin becomes a reserve currency? Held by sovereign, uh, um, held by sovereign entities, held by held by countries, held by central banks, and I've seen estimates of anywhere between two or three million, all the way up to twenty-five or thirty million wow. per coin, if Bitcoin replaces the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency or is just in the mix along with dollars, pounds, francs, whatever. So, and I, we've talked about the United States, and I want to bring it closer to home to Egypt. Um, it was illegal for a while, and they've recently passed some laws that are more lenient on buying it from like certified sources. And I'm curious for a country like Egypt, like what do you think Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies offer offer your society? I think if it I, yeah, were to I even think, become a reserve currency one day. No, absolutely. I think that um, Bitcoin transcends borders. It's um, it's a system that works as easily as sending text messages. But it's, it has money, it has value in it. It allows someone in Egypt to work anywhere and get paid quite easily. It allows someone in Egypt to work in, an, in the crypto economy, which just exists online and, and be an active participant in it. Um, there's a lot of research on uh, women controlling their own finances being a very good thing for them, their families, and therefore society. Mm. Um, having access to that in a technical way is, is quite good. So there's a lot of female empowerment that could come from something like, like Bitcoin. That would be um, awesome. And uh, yeah, overall, I, I think it just allows anyone around the world to connect uh, better and, and, and faster. Whether that's someone that is completely unbanked in the Congo um, 
un underbanked in Egypt or in honestly various states in the United States, or someone that is very well banked at the highest levels in, in Switzerland uh, or Denmark, but wants to have access to um, the rest of the world. Like the stock exchange is closed more hours of the week than it is open. That's Wires um, are built on a system that completely doesn't matter. I come from the Middle East. Our stock exchanges run um, Sunday through Thursday because we have different weekends, um, Monday through Friday, obviously in the West. China's 12 hours ahead. There's a lot of these kinds of inefficiencies that exist in the system that we don't think too much about. Yeah. And borders transcend too, uh, too much as well. Um, and I am uh, sorry, sorry, you can transcend borders much more easily. Yeah. Uh, borders are blocking too much uh, innovation and value and, and therefore creating inefficiencies. It's true. And as work becomes increasingly remote and a location like shouldn't matter for for hiring someone, um, this this would be a helpful tool and make payment a lot easier because it's really tough to calculate taxes in different places and like different hours. And I've I've even heard that from people hiring people in London from the U.S. that that there's a lot of exactly tough stuff there. Um, so my last question for you is about your advice to other founders, because I think there will be so many companies popping up in this space in the next five or ten years, and you know young people wanting to get involved, learn about it, and and build a business here. And what's your advice to those those people? Ultimately, I think it boils down to be incredibly humble, show humility. Um, you don't know anything. Um, I don't know anything. And, and I think if we come from that, um, Socrates and Plato said the same thing, then you're open to learning, you're open to changing your mind, uh, you're open to new experiences and, and new beliefs that could challenge your own. Mm-hmm. And I think if you combine humility with a deep passion and an intellectual curiosity for whatever field, you're not going to go wrong. Well, that's awesome. Haney, thank you so, so, so much for being here and speaking with me today. Um, I learned so much and I loved hearing your insights. This is such an exciting space and I'm I'm really looking forward to the future of 21 shares in Amun and and the accessibility you're going to give to so many people to get involved here. We're still we'll, we're still at the beginning. The first minute of the first hour of the first day. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Once again, I'm Sabrina and I was with Haney Roshwan of Amun and 21 shares. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great day.